Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning. Today we are continuing part two and talking about our core values, our foundation. We're going to be looking at how structure must always submit to spirit. That's one of our core values. And so this morning I want to talk to you about the lost play of Shakespeare, Linguini with Clams. Meat strangled from animals, that sounds yummy, and the scientific method. So we're going to go from literature to science, and we're going to have lunch in between. Okay, something along that line. Imagine, if you would, that you have found a lost play by Shakespeare. There it is. And in this writing of Shakespeare, there were six scenes, but... Part of scene five was missing. And now it is your job to fill in this partial scene. And and to do this, you have the other previously five plus just a, a portion scene and then the last scene. But you have to fill in that gap between 5A and Six. How would you go about doing that? You want to be true to what he was writing in all those previous scenes. You want to hold that narrative together and you want to be true to the conclusions that's there. And to do that final scene, you have to kind of balance these two to find that place in there. And in a real sense, that is what we have taking place in Scripture. We have this storyline that God has played out for us. And we have the the beginning where God gives this beautiful and very poetic explanation of creation. And it is very poetic. It's not meant to be a scientific journal. When you have words like, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's very poetic. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall be one. Right? This is, again, very poetic. It was day and night. It was the first day and it was good. These, these things have this repeating cadence and it's meant to inspire. It's meant to uplift and it's meant to give man an understanding. He was created in God's image. Scene one. Scene two, this man comes on the scene. His name is Abraham and God makes a covenant 
with this man. The God makes a covenant with the man. And it's pretty outstanding, especially at that time, that God would make an agreement with a human being to such a degree. But he does. And so scene two is this agreement that God makes that he is going to take this man and use him to carry this story that he has throughout history. Things happen. He has children. These children start to multiply. They end up in Egypt through these different means. And now they're enslaved in Egypt. And scene three comes on the stage where now a man named Moses and the law to govern these people come into play. And we see that this journey through the wilderness and into the promised land. And we could definitely divide the story up into many more scenes. But for the sake of this study, we're making it six. Okay, so now... Moses and the people of Israel go through this. They have kings, they have prophets, and the prophets kind of stand to to proclaim injustice that sometimes is even being perpetrated by the kings. And they say things like, get away from me with all your sacrifices. They're they're an abomination to me. What God desires is a a contrite heart. And they're trying to kind of keep the storyline on track. And then there's scene four that comes into the play where the Messiah, Jesus, who claims to be the Messiah and steps in to say, I am going to fulfill all that God had meant to do through this man, through these people. I will now be the culmination of these things. And I will be the fulfillment for what was lacking in the people. I will fulfill that. And then scene five, he passes the baton by the Holy Spirit to what is now the church that gives birth. And we get this small portion of chapter five as we have the book of Acts and we have some of the writings. And then the final scene is really a very short scene in the book of Revelation and a few places in the scripture before that in some of the epistles where it talks about the end and it talks about what God is going to do in restoring the heavens and the earth. But we find ourselves in this fifth scene, trying to fill in the gaps here. And so I want to look through the book of Acts and see some of the things that take place and see what God is doing. And so if you want, you can turn with me to chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 41 to 47. Peter, now filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit comes upon these people like a rushing wind, and they see, as it were, these tongues of fire, whatever that means, right, is on these people. And he proclaims this powerful message that convicts people to their hearts. And in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were outed to their number that day. That sounds extraordinary. That sounds terrifying. What do you do with 3,000 people next week? Who's in charge of the children? Right? I mean, what do you do when you've got this church that has birthed 3,000 people strong? This movement's taking place, and it starts in this grand way. He goes on, and he continues, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so we see that there is this connection to one another. There is a community that develops where they actually start caring for one another. And it says that they sold their own stuff to help meet the needs of other people, which is an interesting thought. And so is this how we're supposed to live? Is this what the church is supposed to do? So many times I've heard people say, well, we got to go back to the first century church and we got to repeat those things. Well, the first century church was kind of winging it a lot of times. They were trying to figure out how to do and what to do. And we see a lot of changes taking place. Is this what's supposed to happen? In the early 70s, when I became a follower of Jesus, yes, way back then, There were a lot of these Christian communes that were developed. None of them that I know are existing today, right? They all had this great idea. We're going to live together. It was kind of this peace, love, Woodstock thing, right? We're all going to get together and we're going to just share in the love of God, just like they did in the book of Acts, because you had to talk that way back then. And so there was this whole talk of, yeah, we have to share everything in common. And it sounded great, except... There's always that one guy who's the only guy going to work and providing for all the other guys, right? And he's like, hey, dude, you need to go to work too, man, okay? It's not fair that I'm the only one working. Hey, brother, the book of Acts, it said they all shared in common. You need to sell your car so that I can, you know, buy some clothes. And so there's a lot of ideas of what this means to get together and to have this commune. And we see later on, even in the book of Romans, that Paul tells the church there at Rome, you guys need to help the church in Jerusalem because they're poor and they're struggling and they're suffering. And so there is a, a taking care of one another that's definitely underlining what's taking place. And so part of this scene five that we see is there is this need to care for one another. And that this need is important, that it it dominates the narrative throughout these passages that we have. So whatever we're going to fill this scene in, it has to include this sentiment. It has to include this care. It has to include this trajectory if we're going to follow along. And so now there is this explosion of people coming to faith in this Messiah. And pretty soon, this starts to expand outside of Jerusalem. There's persecution that takes place in Jerusalem, and people start to run, and pretty soon the message starts to run with them, and we find that people even outside of the Jewish faith, outside of this original story, start to come to believe in this person, Christ. And and we see this take place. And you can turn to Acts chapter 10. There is a story of a man named Cornelius who is a Roman centurion. And Peter has a vision. After 
God appears to Cornelius and says, you need to seek out this man, Peter. God also appears to Peter. And he tells him about noon, verse 9 of chapter 10, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. I think the King James says, and all kinds of creeping things, which I think is interesting. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. When I was a young boy, I started off with a very limited palate for food. It it consisted of cheeseburgers and french fries. We would go to a fancy restaurant and they would ask, what do you want? Do you have hamburgers? No, we don't have hamburgers. It's a seafood restaurant. Oh man, we don't have hamburgers. I don't want anything, right? And all of a sudden there was an awakening of my taste buds. They came to fruition and I started to taste other foods. And one of the foods that I sampled that opened a doorway to life to me was linguine with clams, okay? Oh, my goodness, that there could be such thing on this earth as if it fell from heaven. And you could have shrimp scampi in it if you want, but all of a sudden there was an eruption of the taste buds, and I enjoyed this food, and it was like, oh, my gosh. Whenever we went to this one restaurant, it was called Two Guys from Italy there in Hollywood. When we lived there, I had to get the linguine with clams because it was phenomenal. It was an awakening. It was a spiritual experience. I'm telling you guys, you laugh, but it was. It was like, oh my gosh, this was a movement from childhood to adulthood. Yes, this is what food really tastes like. You see, but there was a time when the people could not eat clams or shrimp or bacon. I know. Let's let that pause and hold for a moment. You see, there was dietary laws given in this third scene where they were not allowed to eat certain kinds of food. And so Peter in this story says, not so, Lord, I can't eat anything like that. It is unclean. It's not just because he doesn't like the food. It's because based on the laws that he had heard in scene three, This was not allowed. And all of a sudden, this voice that turns out to be God says, don't say that. That's not the case. And and so Peter goes to Cornelius. There's a knock on the door as he's wakened from this trance. And it is the people that Cornelius sent out to find Peter. And Peter travels with them and goes into Cornelius' house, which was unheard of back then, that this person who was a part of the Jewish people would go into a Roman centurion's house. It was unheard of, but he goes there and they find out that God has been talking to both of them and has arranged this meeting so that they could interact with one another. 
And what we see in chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And so God has opened the door so that now these people and their food, thank God, are a part of this story. And we see that part of this new scene that is taking place has to include this group of people and has to take into account that the dietary laws that were held by these people are not required by these people. That there is, if you would, a lessening. There is a loosening of these restrictions and requirements so that these people are accepted with the food that they bring. That the food isn't what determines if they're okay or not. That God does not show favoritism, accepts people from every nation, the ones who fear him and do what's right. So there's this new standard that's being set. Well, this turns into something big. I mean, it was already big. We already had 3,000 people coming in. Now we've got this Roman centurion. We've got this whole Gentile community, community coming in, and things are just unhinged. What do we do with all these people and all their customs and all their food and the way they act and the way that they talk and the way that they dress and the things that they have learned? How do we now bring them into this story? We are in in scene five here, the beginning of scene five, and, and things are changing incredibly. And so there has to be a meeting after Peter goes and meets with Cornelius and after Paul and Barnabas go out and they start taking this message of Jesus to other people in this Gentile world. They get together and they go to Jerusalem. They say, we got to tell you guys something is going on. And they say, well, we have to figure out what's going to be done. Some of them are saying, you need to go back to scene three and you need to start holding to some of the laws that were there. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, 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 that is not the requirement anymore. Scene four changed all that. Scene five is moving us forward and they finally have a meeting. And in chapter 15 of Acts, we see in verses 22 through 29, The apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabbas. Why does everyone have uh, alias names? And Silas. Men who were leaders. Why can't you just call them Judas? Why do you have to call them something? You ever meet people like that? Yeah, my name's Joe, but you can call me Smith. It's like, is it Joe or Smith? What is it? I don't know. know. Anyway, that's it. Side note. And Silas, men who were leaders among the believers, and with them they sent the following letter. The apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. How did they disturb them? They said that they had to follow some of these things again back in scene three. They have disturbed you. Where I lost my place here. 
troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men, send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Here are the requirements we have for all this new group of people who are coming into the fold. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, do you ever read the Bible and just like wonder, huh? What is that? And you don't say that out loud because it's the Bible and you're not supposed to you know, say, that doesn't make sense to me because it's the Bible. It's supposed to make sense. But this does not make sense to me. When I first read it, it's like, these are the important things? Next time you go to Fleming's, Make sure you ask the waiter, excuse me, was this meat strangled? Because according to scripture, I cannot eat any meat that has been strangled. Or if you go to Juan Pollo, these chickens have been strangled? They will look at you like a chicken probably and say, huh? What does that mean? It does not resonate. It will not make sense. Because it is not our culture. And what we see here is they're writing about things concerning idolatry, concerning worship of different ways. That's the whole point of food that is sacrificed, the idea of blood being used in ceremonial sacrifice, animals that were strangled. Again, this is all part of other areas of worship that he was addressing. But... You start to think back, okay, we started this, and first we weren't allowed to eat certain foods, and then we could eat any food, but now we can't eat foods that are strangled or that are used in this area of worship. And so how do we finish this scene? What can I, can I eat linguine or not? What is the point that is going on? What is the theme that we need to carry on through this? So that we can understand what are the importance of restrictions? Why are they there? What's the purpose of these things? Because if we miss this point, we will put more regulations in place that aren't connected to the theme in the heart and what the point is of the scene we're supposed to be a part of. It's interesting that in science, there's a scientific method. Now, I'm no scientist, okay? So I found this online. And the idea of the scientific method is you follow these procedures to find out something, okay? At what temperature does water freeze, right? That's your theory. That's your purpose. You're, you're stating, I want to know at what temperature does water freeze? And so you research to find out about that topic, and then you make a hypothesis and an experiment and an analysis, right? And so you put water in a, a cold place, and then it starts to get cold, and you watch it, and you find out at 32 degrees, water freezes. Boom. 
That's how we find out. And you repeat that, and yep. And so then you make the conclusion. Based on your hypothesis and experiment, the analysis is at 32 degrees, water freezes. And then you can put it in books, and you can make the conclusion, we have found out that water freezes at 32 degrees. That's the the method, the scientific method. You have the problem, you present the information, you do an analysis, you record the analysis, and then you have the conclusion. The amazing thing about the scientific method is that, and it's supposed to happen, and I know it doesn't always happen. I know that there are people who have prejudices in science just like they are prejudices in every other area. But what's supposed to happen is if you find out something different, which they have, by the way, with water, there are times where water does not freeze until negative 50 degrees when it's in clouds. And in temperature, it has to get even colder before it'll solidify and freeze. So now what do you do? Well, what the scientific method does is it says the fact that we said here now has to be put to the side because the method is actually what's important that we follow that. And so we will no longer consider this as an always fact. Yeah, most of the time it freezes at 32 degrees. But in certain temperatures, in certain barometric pressures, whatever that means, then we will find that water actually freezes at a different temperature. And so the fact is not more important than the method which is an interesting thing, that they would actually go to the evidence and support the evidence rather than their previous conclusions if they find out that the evidences will show new light onto the old conclusions. That science is supposed to consider fact less important than the method that they use to find those things. In a relentless pursuit of truth, it's essential to be willing to reevaluate what was once held as fact for the desire of what is true. To try and find out what is the point. It was a fact, say, that they were not allowed to eat shelled fish. That was the fact. But what was the point? Because here comes this group of people, and now it's okay. They're allowed. Don't call unclean what God has now made clean. So something happened in this fourth scene that changed that law and made this okay. But now here's something else happening in scene five where these people are involved with worship that can be a problem. And so we're going to put more restrictions here, not because the food's a problem, because there's something else that's more important. To what do we owe our deeper Loyalty. Catholics have traditionally entrusted the regulation of beliefs to the magisterium, the Pope, and the bishops. What the Pope says, that becomes what is their truth. It becomes what their final line is. It becomes their infallibility. Now, Protestants didn't like that. There is, again, that whole... Reformation, there was a change. And then the Protestants said, well, we were going to hold to Scripture. 
And we're going to say that the scripture is what we hold to. That is for men. Women weren't allowed at that time to read it, just by the way. And, and so now this becomes that. But then you can imagine what happened. There's all these different dominations deciding what it means as far as baptism, what it means as far as infallibility, what it means as far as inerrancy, what does it mean as far as uh, the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what does it mean in the Lord's table and communion. And so now you have all these de- denominations talking about their different beliefs and what these things that are the final authority means. Both claim to have authority because an inerrant authority tells them so. Right? It's either the magisteria or it's the scripture and those things. And the more Catholics and Protestants argued about their differing methods and determining correct beliefs, the more they reinforced kind of a different a deeper point that it's the beliefs that are going to matter most. And as I mentioned last week, it's not that beliefs aren't important, but there is something that needs to guide us through our beliefs that hold us to happen. What happens when those beliefs, facts as they were, are are put to the test? Well, now women are seen, at least, most places in my house, as equal to men. In fact, actually, in our house, it's probably more so, right? If I was gone for a week and I came home, you might find, you know, the trash is full and, you know, a few things aren't, you know, the toilet's leaking. And that's it. And I come home and I feel wanted. I'll empty the trash, babe. Sure, no problem. If my wife was gone for a week, you would find a slab and smoldering embers where the house used to be, right? It's kind of like she actually runs the place, and I'd be like, I don't know what happened, babe. I took a nap, and this is what I woke up to. See, there was a time where women were considered inferior. There was a time where people of color or slavery was considered an okay way to help economic progress. And it was supported by churches and beliefs in Scripture. What happens when something comes out and it says, this is not so, where do we go? How do we move forward? When does strangled meat no longer become a big deal? Why don't we worry about that? Why don't women wear hats in churches like they did in Corinth when they were instructed to? You see, there's something that's going on that we have to look into to find out what is the purpose behind that and that there is, in a sense, a law above the law that is guiding this. I thought it was interesting that the Dalai Lama, the leader of Tibetan Buddhism, He said, if scientific analysis were conclusively to demonstrate certain claims in Buddhism to be false, then we must accept the findings of science and abandon those claims. Wow. Think about that. Now, I'm just throwing this out for shock's sake. Can you imagine any Christian saying that? And, And I'm not saying, well, science is more important than Scripture. All I'm saying is, what if they proved something and it was obvious that women are equal to men? 
that all these things, whatever it might be that even sometimes in the past we've held, would we be able to say, you know what, maybe I need to rethink how I am interpreting something in light of the evidence that is here. But we hold on to those traditions so much because we're afraid to let them go. And here in this fifth scene, what we're seeing is there's something that is guiding us. There is a method that is being underlined through these followers of Jesus as they're giving up their, their property and caring for one another, as they're extending this gospel to people who eat these kinds of food and now saying they're okay, that now are restricting these certain kinds of foods because of something that is taking place. There is something that is pushing this forward that is a method that we need to hold on to. We see Paul as he he talks to the Jews in Acts chapter 13 and he uses their scriptures and brings it about in chapter 14 and 17 when he's talking to the Gentiles, he does not go to the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, he goes to the pagan writings and brings them into an understanding of who this Christ is based on their writings. So we see that there is an, again, an ability to reach to the extents that they weren't able to reach before with this message. But there's something that is driving them. I believe that something is Christ himself. I believe it is the character and the person of Christ. I believe that's why this is our core value that structure must always submit to spirit. You see, the work of God takes place in the people of God. It does not take place in organizations. It does not take place in systems. It does not take place in just a belief system. It takes place in the human hearts. And what happens when we make our systems what's important instead of the people that are important? Well, then you have someone like me come on. I'm the pastor here, and I want to have a dance program. So, Nick and John, you're going to be a part of our dance team right now. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it, right? And you got these guys looking at me terrified like they are right now, right? They're saying, say what? You see, I'm saying this program needs this, and I'm saying you need to fill this program instead of the program coming from the people who are part of our community. And that shapes what we do, not the system the other way around. Because it is God working in his people that we care about. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important thing? What is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and prophets. Why does he separate that? Because oftentimes the prophets were rebelling against the misuse of the law. And he's saying everything that they're saying hinges on this. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything is hinged on this. 
Well, what about this? Everything has to, this is the methodology that we have to follow. If we are going to be consistent in how we put things into place, it has to follow this line of reason that we love God and we love people. And so Jesus would say, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Luke chapter 6, he says, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. You see, if we're going to fill in this missing scene that we are a part of, it has to be utilizing the character that God has put there where people are what is important and what God is trying to do. He's not trying to enact a religious system that keeps you living the right way. He is trying to make you alive and he is going to keep you on the right way. It is the spirit of God working in the heart of people that brings about the change that is needed. And so Paul could say to the Corinthians who had all kinds of issues. Okay, you guys, I almost feel like Paul was just like, I can't believe I'm saying this. All things are lawful. (laughs) But not everything's good. Right? All things are lawful. But not everything's beneficial. You see, there are things that aren't going to be good for you, even though you can do it. If you're allergic to fish, don't eat the linguine with clams. It's just not good for you. But everything's lawful. What a broad brush that is. And what we have to do is find a methodology that keeps people in the priority that God had intended them to be and not put a church system, a religious dogma. It could even be a doctrine, and I'm not against doctrines. But when these things are used to bring a hindrance to people in their relationship to God, then they are out of line. Because the methodology we use is that God cares for people, that Christ died for people, not for systems. Not so that our churches could get bigger. Not so that we could prove ourselves right in comparison with the other people. So that he could have a relationship. And everything he does is about helping and developing that relationship. What if when Jesus went into the temple and started overthrowing the tables, you know, he... A lot of times it's all about, well, he wanted to stop the money changers from making that, you know, money from that. But he also got rid of the doves, and those were the cheap ones. What if he was just saying, you know what? Chapter 3 is done. Chapter 4 is here, and all this sacrifice, it does not need to happen anymore. I'm taking care of it now. What if by turning over those tables, he was turning over that whole system? Setting something new into place. As he proclaims himself 
resurrection and life. And what we need to do is hold on to that theme that is carrying through this chapter. And we need to write accurately this missing piece that we are living in that represents accurately the heart of this Christ who came that represents accurately the God who was caring for, taking care of these people, trying to bring a message to the world, accurately represents God talking to this man, saying through you, everyone is going to be blessed, that represents accurately God saying, I created mankind in my image, that you have intention, you have purpose, you have value. And we carry that through because we believe that structure Whatever structure must always submit to the work of God that takes place in people. Let's pray. Father, you have disrupted history. You have disrupted religious systems. You have disrupted lives, challenging us to become servants of all if we want to be great. You have challenged us that if we want to do what is right by you, then we need to love you and we need to love others. You have even challenged us that we cannot say that we love you if we do not love others. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have in our minds and in our methodology of how we move forward, it would never be at the expense of people. That we would never be quick to throw aside but we would show mercy even as you have shown mercy. We would be perfect in that way even as you have been perfect. And you would help us to grapple with this life that we're living here with with trying to continue the character of Christ at a time that is changing, at a time where there is tension that we would maintain a posture that lifts people into your image instead of trying to overthrow the system that you set in place and put our own. And, And I pray for Genesis as a community, God, that we would learn how to do this, that we would dance this dance in the world that we live with. With our hands held to you and then our other hand held to others. That we would see that you have reached out to everyone. Those who care about you and those who do what's just, you desire to bring them into a fuller knowledge of who you are, Christ. May we be the people that are able to introduce you to those who are searching, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, 
may you use us to quench that thirst, to fill that hunger. May your grace be extended. And may we see the value of people as you have given us value. I do pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. May the only thing that constrains you be the love of Christ. And may it constrain you in the best of ways. May it set you free to love like never before. And may it hold you close to the heart of God as he desires to work in and through you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Hope to see you guys again next week. Michael Turner will be sharing with us next week, so make sure to be here. God bless you guys. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.